Infertility affects about one in eight couples trying to conceive. So it is likely that you know someone who has experienced infertility, or you may have dealt with it yourself. This can be a very stressful time for couples and fertility treatments can be very expensive and are not always covered by health insurance. So couples often try everything they can to get pregnant. But there is a lot of advice out there for what you should and should not be doing to improve fertility. What does the actual science say about what contributes to risk of infertility? And what are the best methods to increase fertility? Today we'll discuss the options available and try to clear up any confusion. We will also shed some light on how common this condition is for men and for women, and whether there are differences in trends across time or countries. I'm your host, Brian James from Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from the researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, we are excited to be talking about infertility with Dr. Enrique Schisterman from the National Institutes of Health and also a past president of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Welcome to Epidemiology Counts, Enrique. Hi, Brian. Nice to be here. Great. I've, Go ahead. Yes, I was also going to introduce my fellow and uh, Jessica Zalton. Please do. Jessica. Is a, <laughs> hi, Jessica. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. Jessica is a reproductive endocrinologist uh, and doing her fellowship here at NICHD. She's actually a, a, a practicing clinician helping couples becoming pregnant. So thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Can you just say briefly for our listeners what NICHD stands for? Sure. NICHD is one of the 29 institutes that NIH has and in NACHD is the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Thank you very much. So Enrique will provide an epidemiologic perspective on infertility and Jessica will provide a clinical perspective. So I think we've got two fantastic people to talk about this topic with. Um, so let's start this off by talking about how common or how prevalent infertility is. I believe through my own interactions with friends and loved ones, at least, that the societal stigma around infertility, thankfully, appears to be fading a little bit. Perhaps a growing understanding that this condition is pretty common is helping to combat the stigma. I mentioned in the intro that one in eight couples deal with this issue, but let's break that down further. How common is infertility? Enrique, can you talk about that? Maybe talk about for women and for men? Sure. Infertility is actually more common than we think. It's, as you said, Brian, very well stated is that it's one in eight couples will suffer from infertility. Approximately, actually, one million babies are born in the U.S. from infertility treatment. And the prevalence of infertility, meaning the number of couples that are trying to become pregnant and actually having infertility problems, is approximately between 6 to 7% of the population. It's divided, 40% of them are due to male factors, meaning the, 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 the male have problems with infertility. Another 40% is only from the female side. And then there is another 20% that it's a joint problem. Mm -hmm. Jessica, you wanna add something about that? 
Um, I just want to say it is uh, seem like very prevalent, very prevalent because so many people are talking. We hear stories on social media all the time. Um, our family members are sharing them. So I think with that greater understanding that infertility is a disease, uh, more people are seeking treatment as well. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about that, um, what you just said, that this is considered a disease now? I think maybe a lot of people listening to Epidemiology Counts may, may think, oh, infertility. I thought that they usually talk about, you know, disease and health conditions. Can we um, tell the listeners a little bit about how infertility is classified as a disease these days? So in 2009, the World Health Organization announced that infertility was a disease, and not long after, the um, American Medical Association also joined. So that led to an increase um, awareness and also um, a, a change in public policy where um, more states are providing some coverage for infertility evaluation and treatment. We still have a long way to go because about 50% of couples are still not getting the care that they need. Mm -hmm. That classification that Jessica was talking about is super important from, from moving from being classified as a condition to a disease, imply that before that status change, it wasn't covered under insurance. So, so couples trying to become pregnant and looking for, for assisted with, with different doctors were not able to have the treatment that they needed. So that change in, in designation is one of the most important things that had happened uh, to the treatment of infertility, yeah. actually. That's great. To, yeah, wonderful. Um, so thank you guys for the, this, you know, letting us know how common this is. But, you know, as we think about infertility, you know, you gave the stats, you know, this many males have, um, have infertility as how many females, but you know, infertility may not be a yes or no condition or disease, right? It, um, you know, I assume it may be more difficult for some men or some women to have a child, even though they're still capable of having a child eventually. Um, for example, low semen count comes to mind. So how does that fit into these statistics? So approximately 85 to 90% of healthy young couples will conceive within one year. Mm -hmm. And the majority of those couples are going to conceive in the first six months, so 60%. Mm -hmm. um, there's then that group that doesn't conceive, is not entirely infertile, but they have a decreased uh, reprodu reproductive efficiency. Um, and so that's kind of the way, where we um, define the subfertile. So at what point should a couple that is trying to have a child but not having success start to worry? You know, when should they decide it's time to go to the doctor? That's an excellent question. We, we me and Jessica have been talking about this for a, for a while uh, because there is this desire to do it at, as soon as you can, mm -hmm. except that that depends on your age and circumstances. Mm -hmm. So. Jessica, why don't you give the official definition of when somebody should come and, and see you? So we define infertility as one year of unprotected intercourse without conception. Um, and those that should see a doctor, it does depend on age. So if you're 35 years or younger, then you should um, definitely see a physician after one year of infertility. Mm -hmm. If you're older than that, we don't give you enough time. Um, we don't give you that one year. We mm -hmm. ask patients to come and see us at six months, and that's due to the natural decline in fertility as you age. Right, so it makes sense, right? So 
natural fertility, when you are much younger, you're supposed to be able, you have a biological capacity to become pregnant sooner. Mm -hmm. As we age, we all know that happens with, with aging, that couples are having a harder time to get pregnant. So therefore, we try to shorten the time and ask those couples above age of 35 to come and visit Jessica or mm -hmm. other REI uh, doctors to, mm -hmm. to seek for help. Otherwise, just try. Trying for up to 12 months is, is completely normal. And 90% of 80, between 80 and 90% of those couples trying for up to 12 months will get pregnant. Mm. I will add, though, if you're concerned about um, your fertility, if you've had a history of pelvic inflammatory disease or a sexually transmitted infection, or um, you know infertility is common in your family, um, and especially if you're not having regular periods, then don't give yourself any um, time frame. You should see your doctor immediately. Okay, so so what are some of the most common conditions or diagnoses that are associated with infertility? I think that Jessica, you, you are the best to explain this. And <laughs> okay. maybe you can also explain what does it mean, those conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so for female infertility, 40% of women um, have ovulation disorders. So that means they're not having um, an ovulatory cycle every month. Our cycles are normally 21 to 35 days. And if you're outside of that window, either uh, have experiencing vaginal bleeding less than that or more uh, than 35 days, then, um, then you're likely anovulatory. What does that um, mean, Jessica, to be anovulatory? It means that you're not releasing that egg every month. So uh, your chance of... Um, uh, conception is is very, very low if you're not having regular cycles. Right. So it means that, I guess that what you're saying is that you have to have an egg to reproduce, and therefore you have to um, ovulate to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So if you have a longer or very short cycle, it's an indication that maybe you are not ovulating as normal. Right, Jessica? Mm -hmm. Correct. Gotcha. The other 40% um, of women have uh, issues due to tubal or pelvic pathology. Mm -hmm. So that means that um, they may have had previous surgery that uh, has created scar tissue in the pelvis that may impact uh, the, the tube function. So the tube is supposed to stay open to allow that sperm and egg uh, fertilize and then implant into the uterus. If there's a blockage, then uh, fertilization um, either can occur or occurs at a lower rate. And then those women are at an increased risk of um, an ectopic pregnancy. The other things that we, we are concerned about are things like fibroids. So is there a fibroid that may be um, impacting implantation or allowing that sperm and egg to meet? At so, 10 per, mm -hmm. What do you mean by, by remind us all, what does it mean the tubal blockage and pelvic inflammation, what does it mean for, for, for me? How do I know that? So this is part of the basic infertility workup is, is that we check to make sure the fallopian tubes are open. Um, this is done through a test called an HSG, hysterosalpingogram. And it's a test where we um, inject dye into the uterus and we watch that dye flow out of the fallopian tubes. Um, and we take an x-ray at the same time. 
and you can really tell if the the, the fallopian tubes and the is open. How that sounds that sounds cool. So um, there is some false positive um, results, and this is because when we inject that dye, you can actually have spasm of the fallopian tubes and contractions of the uterus. So it may show that your tube is blocked when in fact it's not. Um, we review kind of the patient history when this occurs. If you have a high index of suspicion, so we think that the tubes are blocked, then we'll schedule you for um, a surgery. If we think that maybe it was a tubal spasm, we may decide to repeat the HSG. Mm -hmm. So should I go and ask to my doctor to do an H a, a test like this? This is a test that is frequently part of the basic infertility evaluation. Got it, got it. Is it painful? It is the most uncomfortable test that um, patients usually have during their evaluation. Uh -huh. um, I always tell my patients that uh, Motrin beforehand is uh, warranted. Uh -huh. I see. So that, so that you said was the, uh, another 40%, and then mm -hmm. I believe that adds up to 80%. So. Yes, you're doing your math. <laughs> Um, so 10% are actually unexplained. So this mm -hmm. is difficult diagnosis. Everything looks great um, and we don't have a, a issue that we've identified and it can be kind of um, unnerving for patients because they want to know what the problem is and fix it. But for these patients, um, the, um, we don't have all the answers and whether we just aren't able to test for things yet um, mm -hmm. or if it's truly just a, kind of a longer duration of, of infertility. And then the other 10% is unusual problems. So things um, that uncommonly occur, like a female may be born without a uterus, um, or there may be a premature menopause. So those uh, women kind of fall into that category. See. Okay, so that covers female infertility. What about, what are the most common conditions or diagnoses for males? So one to 2% of men um, are diagnosed with hypothalamic pituitary disorders. So that means the signal that's supposed to go from the hypothalamus and the pituitary in the brain to tell the testicles to secrete to test, uh, testosterone or produce sperm, um, it's not working. So sometimes this is a, a blockage caused by um, a tumor. So a prolactin tumor is common or other times it's just due to um, uh, a deficiency of um, that occurs in utero. So while that male is developing. And can you take like a hormone treatment for that to treat that? Um, for some people, we can uh, prescribe medications, injections mm -hmm. to um, kind of uh, signal those testicles to start uh, uh, producing uh, sperm and also producing testosterone. Mm -hmm. But that's only one to 2%, right? Yes. Okay, so that's small. So, okay, mm -hmm. what else is there? So the 30 to 40% um, is testicular disorders. Um, so men may um, be told as an infant that they had undescended testicles and needed to um, uh, have surgical correction, and that can uh, affect sperm production. Um, also, men uh, may have... Um, inherited a genetic mutation which affects uh, uh, testicular function or have been exposed to things like chemotherapy that um, can also cause testicular damage. I was going to ask, so we talked about testing for, for the workup for females. What's the workup for a male? 
Well, males, I would say, have it a little bit easier. Um, the initial step would be a history and physical. So um, just kind of going through any risks that uh, may be present. And also, um, they have to uh, provide a sperm sample. And that's it. And then from the semen analysis, um, usually, um, if anything's abnormal, there may be a further evaluation and typically a recommendation to the urologist. Got it. Okay, so, but we're still only at about 42% here. So I, I know there are some other disorders that are common for males uh, that cause infertility. Yeah, so about almost 50% of men is, um, after evaluation, we won't know the cause of their infertility. So hmm. that's called idiopathic. Wow. Um, so that's um, a pretty large subset of men. Yeah. And then um, another 10 to 20% actually have a disorder in sperm transport. So the, the tube carrying the sperm um, out of the body, out of the penis is actually either blocked and this be, can be caused from an infection or sometimes that tube doesn't develop um, when um, that male was uh, developing in utero. Mm -hmm. So that would be something probably where you could harvest the sperm through another uh, mechanism and still be able to have a child. So, uh, so all of the conditions we're talking about have different treatments and different uh, ways to work around them, I would think, right? Right, correct. And, and um, there are some uh, patients that will be able to have sperm retrieved, and this is mm -hmm. done uh, by a reproductive urologist. Wow, but that's, so you're saying about half of males who have infertility, we, we just don't know what the cause is. Correct. And hopefully with advancing science, we may be mm -hmm. able to um, develop uh, more uh, actual uh, testing to figure out what exactly is, go is going mm -hmm. on in these cases. And that's, this is actually what keeps us employed. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> you researchers keep working on it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's really interesting. Um, you know, the conditions and the uh, so there's all sorts of th reasons that you could be infertile, right? But because of that, we hear all these things that you should or should not be doing, right? You know, what, what can you do to increase your fertility? Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of mythology out there about, you know, what works, old wives' tales, et cetera. Um, so maybe let's break down, you know, what are some of the actual known risk factors for infertility or known methods to increase fertility that are backed up by science? That sounds great. Yes, there are many, many risk factors that are associated with couples becoming pregnant because in, in, in this context, we need to be thinking about couples and not mm -hmm. either the male or the female. That's the, a good point. Uh, so number one, I will say, maybe I will say the risk factor and, and you, Jessica, can talk a little bit about it. Is that okay. good? So mm -hmm. how about, uh, well, we, we talked a lot about caffeine as one mm -hmm. of being one of the main risk factors, not only for, for becoming pregnant, but also for pregnancy. And, and huh. caffeine. Huh? Caffeine. Wait, yes. so risk factors for infertility as well as for pregnancy. Is that what you right. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I would definitely want to hear about this because I know a lot of us out here drink a lot of caffeine. So. <laughs> yes. So for caffeine, I'm going to be more conservative. Um, on my uh, counseling to patients. Um, caffeine, we know that probably caffeine in high amounts will decrease your pregnancy. 
Um, and generally oh, the guideline, what you mean by decrease your pregnancy, decrease pregnancy rates, oh, okay. um, rate of, okay. Being but there's data all over the place. Mm -hmm. So we usually recommend just one to two cups of, uh, caffeinated beverage per day. Um, men on the other hand can drink as much as they want. We don't have any studies to, to suggest it may affect fertility. Okay. That's interesting. But you're saying above that recommended one to two cups of coffee, or, or whatever caffeinated beverage we're talking about, there actually is um, evidence that it can decrease pregnancy rate. There have been studies to show mm. that a decreased fertility rate and potentially an increase in miscarriage. Oh, interesting. Okay. But Brian, the, the data in this area is, is, very, is relatively new and sure. not um, of the quality that we will like. Right. We are working in the field to try to provide evidence of what's the right amount of caffeine, mm -hmm. uh, what type of caffeinated drinks are, are associated with uh, becoming pregnant or not. Also, what type of uh, caffeine uh, consumption is associated, maybe associated with pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to study this area because you have to sure. be a prospectively collecting data before couples get pregnant right. until they get pregnant. So usually yeah. this is done by couples who are planning to become pregnant and mm -hmm. not spontaneously getting pregnant and so on. So a very difficult area to study. I can imagine there are a lot of confounders to uh, that relationship that That's you have right. to look at. Yeah. Um, well, actually, so while we're talking about things that you can consume that are very commonly consumed. Let's talk about alcohol. So what, what, um, is there any evidence that alcohol affect, obviously drinking to extreme amounts can, but what, what is the, uh, what are the recommendations for alcohol in pregnancy? So I follow, excuse me, I follow the, a very conservative, um, after ovulation, uh, mm -hmm. probably should, uh, refrain from using alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, there are studies all over the place and my guidelines are basically based on the risk of alcohol and, uh, birth defects. Right. And so because we can't say any amount of alcohol is safe in pregnancy, we usually recommend, um, practicing, um, uh, kind of avoidance of alcohol after ovulation. Right. Uh, but that's mostly for birth defect risk. Correct. Is there any actual evidence that it decreases or increases, um, you know, rate of pregnancy? I know there <laughs> are some people studies, chuckling yeah. about that. Um, you know. <laughs> They're all over the place. There's some studies that say it may improve pregnancy rates mm -hmm. and others that say it may decrease. I see. I will say that the data is not consistent enough to, to have a clear recommendation. Yeah. But again, studying the uh, alcohol consumption during the preconception period is mm -hmm. a very hard endeavor. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised that it's a, it's a hard question to answer. I right. think we'll get there, but as long as we don't have a, a really well done studies to answer those questions, I think that following Jessica's advice, which is a very conservative one, is it seems that the, the right path. That's the right way to go. Okay, so what about, you know, related, I, I mean, there's been a wave of legalization of marijuana products in the, um, you know, in the recent years. So I'm sure people are wondering how marijuana can affect fertility rates. So also, because uh, the change is very recent in, mm -hmm. in legalization of marijuana, uh, the data is not as consistent. 
There are two studies who are showing there are no associations between preconception use of marijuana and the probability of becoming pregnant. There is one study that we did that is showing a little bit of an effect, uh, meaning decreases the, the probability of becoming pregnant, hmm. but larger and bigger studies are needed to answer this important question, given mm -hmm. that there is a movement of legalizing marijuana in, in the country mm -hmm. and couples will try to continue to become pregnant. And right. it's, so we need to have very good answers for that question. And are, were most of those studies done at the level of, of just the uh, female or at the couple or, you know, I mean, is there a difference? Is it affect sperm count? You know, is there, or we don't have that information yet? We just started to have some of the, that information. The, mm -hmm. the a group in Boston led by, by Lauren Wise, an SER mm -hmm. member, had just recently presented data that shows that there is some some effects but are, are really not not clear so mm -hmm. uh, a group like her who has collecting very big data sets uh, will be able to answer some of the questions in the future mm -hmm. uh, much better but the data is self-reported meaning the people are being asked and and uh, and we analyze that data yeah. we need to get to the level of analyzing biomarkers mm -hmm. meaning you know what actually is when was the, the the consumption of marijuana was it three days ago a week ago a year ago and so on so we need to be able to disentangle all the all the what we call chronic and and acute effects mm -hmm. got it so what about you know another timely topic these days what about opioids you know how, do, how does opioid use affect pregnancy well, opioids is a it's a critical question, and mm -hmm. because it's prescribed, or it was prescribed so yeah. commonly for any condition, including uh, conditions that maybe this is a question that you, Jessica, should answer. Mm -hmm. When do you guys use to prescribe opioids? And so typically after a cesarean section, mm -hmm. um, and some women may require it if they um, have a procedure like a DNC. Um, we're definitely more careful. I would hope um, we should have always been careful about prescribing, but I think it's on everyone's radar, especially right. now. What's a DNC, Jessica, for those who don't know? The what? Oh, DNC, hey. uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, dilation and curatage. So someone that might have to have a procedure after a miscarriage, um, typically women are, are put to sleep and they may have some discomfort afterwards. So we do provide pain relief. Right. And so those, those procedures, uh, were typically were typical to prescribe something for pain, and mm -hmm. opioids is is one of the most powerful mm -hmm. anti-pain medications that we have, right? So it wasn't. It's not surprising that it was sure. prescribed so commonly. Certainly indicated, right? Uh, but that was all during or after pregnancy. We're talking about, right? So I, I guess I was. I was. Uh, that's very interesting information. But I was. I was. I think people are wondering how opioid use when you're trying to conceive could actually affect your fertility rate? Well, what we're concerned about is um, the fact that a lot of women may have this medication in their cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, and so they may be trying to conceive shortly after a, a miscarriage. Oh, right. um, and so we don't know exactly when the exposure of the medication and then mm -hmm. um, attempting to conceive. So a lot of that data is just um, not available. Mm -hmm. I see. All right, so we talked about some of the um, more kind of, you know, uh, commonly used or, or, or consumed um, 
risk factors that are that are have been discussed for pregnancy. But you know, there's been a lot of other things in the news um, that maybe seem a little frivolous, but I certainly have heard them, and I know people will be wondering. You know, for example, hot tubs and saunas. You know, I know that that. That has come up, you know, could that actually be decreasing fertility? What about tight underwear? You know, I, I know that men wearing, you know, boxers versus briefs, I, I don't know if there's any validity to this. So could you guys shed some light on that? So we ask women to avoid hot tubs and saunas in pregnancy because mm -hmm. of an increased risk of um, spina bifida. I don't know of any data that says that when they're trying, when a, a female is trying to conceive that they should avoid a hot tub. Mm -hmm. um, for men, it's, a, it's in theory that an increased uh, temperature uh, may cause an increase in uh, scrotal temperature, which will mm -hmm. affect um, the production of sperm. And so we advise men to abstain from using a sauna while they're trying to conceive, but the data is um, uh, not clear. Interesting. So yeah, there is yeah. some evidence that the raised temperature yeah. from a hot tub or sauna could actually decrease fertility. But what I was going to add to what Jessica is saying that is that, you know, people like Jessica are using common sense to make mm -hmm. this type of decisions. I mean, biologically, it's possible that, that they might affect sperm or sperm production mm -hmm. or pregnancy, but the data is not really there. Ah, we need okay. to care to that point so mm -hmm. they will be able to have evidence-based informed decisions. I mean, uh, using one type of underwear versus an, the other type, I don't think it's a big decision overall. I think it's a matter <laughs> of taste. Uh, okay. I, I don't think that Good Jessica will fit, will feel that strongly if they use one type or the other. Although, you know, when you are trying to, to have a child, you will try anything absolutely anything to do to maximize your chances. Sure. Of, of and hot tubs and underwear are definitely yes. things that people will try to increase their uh, pregnancy. Right. Um, so, okay. So basically what you're saying is there's not a lot of evidence there with the, you know, type of underwear you choose, right. et cetera. But there, but there is some common sense indication that, you know, body temperature could have a relationship between sperm count. Yes. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But, we, but the data is still being gathered. Okay. All right. Well, what about, you know, diet and exercise? Let's talk about that. So what should I be eating or not eating if I want to increase my chance of having a child? So I don't recommend a specific diet. A diet rich in fruits and vegetables um, is important for all of us. Um, I don't think that there's any evidence to say one specific diet will um, increase your chances for pregnancy. Um, I do recommend that my patients, when they're pregnant, um, only consume about two servings of fish um, per week because of the risk of mercury. Um, but the biggest thing about diet is increase your folic acid. All women should be uh, taking a, a prenatal vitamin before they uh, are pregnant. Enrique, yeah. do you have a diet of choice? I I don't have a diet choice. The pregnancy uh, diet. You can write a book. <laughs> yes, there is already a book on pregnancy I'm diet sure or fertility pregnancy diet. And I'm sure uh, my colleague, uh, Sunny Mumford, who specialized on that, has shown some really good evidence of what we call micronutrients that affect uh, the probability of becoming pregnant or not. It's a rich field. There's a lot to be studying. I think folic acid is one that has shown some consistent evidence. Um, but Does folic acid increase your fertility rate or is it more about birth defects? 
Well, it, it decreases pregnancy loss. Okay. So, so, you know, birth defects mm -hmm. is one type of the reasons why you will have a pregnancy mm -hmm. loss, but there is some good data that folic acid decreases pregnancy loss. I see. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't recommend a specific diet mm -hmm. at, at the point, at this point, but I think we are really working on trying to find what will be the, the mm -hmm. ideal diet to, to find those, uh, those factors. Gotcha. So eat healthy, just like all of these other risk factors and, and health outcomes we talk about. You, you can never go wrong to eat fruits and vegetables. Um, what about exercise? So I'm pretty sure I know the answer here, but I just think we should say it out loud. Should people be exercising when they're trying to get pregnant? People should stay active. Um, in pregnancy, we want uh, women to exercise, and this is low intensity, 20 to 30 minutes of walking per day. I think um, that advice should be started uh, before pregnancy. We should all stay active. Um, there's some evidence to say, um, again, it's not great evidence that women who are active in the first or the, the year prior to conception actually have better pregnancy outcomes mm -hmm. in IVF, um, higher pregnancy rates. But um, we don't have great evidence for, um, for in IVF after an uh, embryo transfer. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have great evidence to say um, you should be uh, exercising or not. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to add that, you know, a I think what Jessica is trying to say that if you were somebody who uh, moderately exercised before you were trying to get pregnant, you shouldn't start training for a marathon <laughs> right. in the month that you're trying to become pregnant mm -hmm. or the other extreme. You shouldn't stay in your become couch and, doing the, and, right. and stop doing mm -hmm. any of the activities that you were doing. Mm -hmm. I guess that it should be the same activity level that you were doing before right nice. jessica is that what I, yes i agree so no major changes in your activity level what about um you know i know i know i've had people talk to me about you know high intensity interval training crossfit you know some of these more intense training regimes are they good bad you know what do they affect fertility at all i don't have um any knowledge of any studies looking at that high intensity uh mm -hmm. exercise um if a uh, female is underweight, that may affect um, their pregnancy uh, rates. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as uh, the high intensity, we wouldn't recommend that during pregnancy. Right. Uh, and so I would say to follow similar guidelines. Okay, interesting. I, I, and you can imagine, Brian, this is a really hard question to ask. Sure. So we don't have data right. on the type of exercise programs that you people are taking, but mm -hmm. it is an important one that we should be collecting data to answer that question. I see. Well, you touched on this briefly, Jessica, but you know, should people be losing weight? I mean, if, if, if people are concerned they're overweight, uh, you know, could that contribute to infertility? Should they be losing weight? So 66% of American women are, are either overweight or obese. Mm -hmm. And um, increased BMI, obese women are at increased risk of not ovulating, um, higher rates of infertility, and an increased uh, risk of pregnancy loss. So I would advise patients who um, are, do not have a normal BMI to exercise um, potentially see a dietitian for a uh, recommendation for any diet changes. Um, and this is the best time before pregnancy to start enacting a healthy lifestyle. 
Yeah, so I will add that the data shows that uh, that uh, being over, overweight or obese increases the risk, first of all, of not becoming pregnant. Mm -hmm. Number two, if you are pregnant, to, in, uh, to have a pregnancy loss. And mm -hmm. then there are multiple pregnancy complications that are associated with, with uh, being obese or overweight, such as gestational diabetes or, mm -hmm. or, or preeclampsia. So if there is an opportunity to plan the pregnancy and uh, um, get into a, a healthier lifestyle where you can lose 5% of the body weight, that will be incredibly useful. Uh, actually, I think in clinic, I mean, not this is not for the majority of the people, but uh, uh, clinics actually will not be there is an upper limit of what uh, individuals will be treated huh. if, if they are too obese. So some clinics will say, we will not be seeing you until you lose 5, 10, 15 pounds or whatever percentage. Right, mm -hmm. Jessica? Correct. And that's due to safety of uh, women undergoing procedures too. So a lot of uh, uh, IVF is done um, in outpatient facility, and we want to make sure that uh, the patient is safe when they're undergoing these treatments. Got it. Okay, that's very interesting information. What about, now I don't want to go too, down too much of a rabbit hole here because we could talk about this for a long time, but um, there are a lot of supplements that are sold you know, that, that are advertised as being good for fertility. So, mm -hmm. you know, shed some light on this. What, what out there do we actually know? What about supplements for men, for women um, that actually can increase fertility? So supplements, they're usually mar marketed as natural. Um, people assume they're safe, but uh, they're not regulated by the FDA. They may have serious side effects. And there's no overwhelming evidence to say that any supplement improves male fertility. Um, Enrique? Yeah, so <laughs> this is clearly a couples trying to become pregnant are, are willing to do almost anything to, mm -hmm. to get to the promised land. And supplements is one of those uh, uh, treatments that it seems to be safe and, and um, relatively inexpensive. So it's an ideal therapy for populations, right? Supplements, uh, if they work, would be great. The data that we have is not that promising. So we just recently finished a clinical trial where we looked at the effect of zinc and folic acid, which is the most commonly uh, supplement uh, recommended for men infertility and actually show that it doesn't work at all. It doesn't yeah. help whatsoever. So um, that's one example. On the other hand, vitamin D, uh, is, it has been shown by our group actually that vitamin D deficiency will uh, increase the time to pregnancy and has some indications of increasing pregnancy loss. Now, we don't know that uh, the fact that the vitamin D is deficient is a consequence uh, of right. um, if taking supplements will help uh, overcome the deficiency mm. to the point that will help couples become pregnant. So in no way, I, I'm here promoting a recommendation mm -hmm. that people should be taking vitamin D supplements because yeah. we don't have evidence for that. 
we just have evidence that vitamin D deficiency is associated with either not becoming pregnant mm -hmm. or losing the pregnancy. So we need data, actually really good data to support uh, that, that question. I see. So you're saying not only is there no evidence that taking vitamin D supplements could help someone with a normal vitamin D level increase their fertility. You're also saying it may not even treat it may not even be able to increase the probability for people with a vitamin D deficiency. That's right. So we oh, know wow. today that the, the ones who have vitamin D deficiency will have uh, adverse mm -hmm. uh, outcomes regarding fertility or pregnancy loss. But we don't know yet if supplements is the answer for that deficiency or for that detriment. Okay. What about anything else? I mean, is, are there any supplements out there that... Um, Anything, any kind of pill you can take over the counter that might be helpful. Yes, actually, uh, not for everyone. So what I will say that there is no supplement or pill that will help every person. Okay. And uh, low-dose aspirin has shown for women who have what we call inflammation, uh, been helping them becoming pregnant and maintaining a pregnancy and, and having a healthy baby. Now, the common person doesn't know if they have inflammation, so they need to be doing a test mm -hmm. for inflammation. And so it's the baby aspirin, 81 milligrams. If you take it preconception only, it seems to be helpful to, to um, have a healthy pregnancy. But for specific women or, or has this been done? For specific women. Okay. Women have who inflammation. have inflammation. Uh, but no evidence. That, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just add that aspirin um, is increasingly being prescribed in pregnancy as well at, at populations who are at risk of preeclampsia. So women who have had a previous history of preeclampsia, di they're diabetics or they have high blood pressure mm -hmm. or twins. Um, so, so we are prescribing that during pregnancy to decrease the risk of preeclampsia. I see. So this is one of those uh, interventions that the evidence from a pregnancy supports the use of, of low-dose aspirin. The evidence preconceptionally supports the use of uh, low-dose aspirin. This is uh, very encouraging, very encouraging. Okay. We still need some evidence, but mm -hmm. it's encouraging that in both uh, settings, it seems to be helpful. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, th I mean, obviously you're still gathering evidence, you're still figuring this out, but, but do you envision this being something that's recommended to all women who are, have, who are trying to uh, conceive or, or is this, do you think it's always going to be a very specific group of women with a certain condition that, um, that this would be recommended for? Well, so I will answer this in, based on my personal opinion okay. and in a very specula speculatory way. Okay. I think that, that we will get to a point that low-dose aspirin will be added to the prenatal vitamin supplements and it will be used as as one now that's right that's right we're still not there yet okay great well, what do you think jessica <laughs> well the pregnancy the data for pregnancy the our recommendations from our congress um the american college of OBGYNs, um 
really the the women who um, should consider taking aspirin, that list keeps getting longer and longer. So before long, it may encompass, you know, almost every pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, that's encouraging. So we may have something um, with the, you know, relatively low side effect risk and that could actually improve things. So that's great. Um, all right. So before we move on to an, another topic, I just want to see if we missed anything. Are there any other uh, procedures, behaviors, things that you would recommend um, that we haven't touched and that can either decrease or increase the risk of fertility? I, I think, think so. I'll make a little plug just okay. for safe sex. So okay. decreasing your risk of sexually transmitted infections mm -hmm. is very important. Um, just because you're on a birth control pill and you're preventing pregnancy doesn't mean that um, you should forego using a condom. So we want to decrease the risk of pelvic infections, mm -hmm. which can affect a fertility later on. And to add to that, I think that all the conditions that we, we express as being cause of uh, causing infertility, the STIs is one of the main contributors to those conditions. So it's an avoidable condition in many, many situations. If we practice a self, safe intercourse, mm -hmm. the, the prevalence of these conditions will decrease over time significantly. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because people tend to think of pregnancy versus STIs is two completely separate things that you're thinking about when you're talking about safe sex and intercourse. But you're saying that having an STI could actually affect your chance of having a successful pregnancy. And that's something that you really have to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, yes. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about maybe some basic uh, instruction for, for couples that are, you know, trying to conceive, you know. Um, I'm sure there's all sorts of questions that you get, Jessica, in terms of how many times per week couples should be having sex. You know, are there things like fertility monitors that could work? Um, you know, how do you advise people before they start uh, the process of treatment for infertility? So I think tracking your cycles um, on a calendar to begin with is very helpful. So knowing how long uh, your menstrual cycles are. Uh, the cycle day one is the first day of bleeding. Um, and so your doctor is going to ask you, okay, how often are you having periods? And then um, we expect ovulation to be around day 14 of your cycle. Mm -hmm. So your, your doctor will ask you, well, are you, are you sexually active during the time of fertility? And a lot of women aren't sure. Um, so, so that's the first thing I think uh, most uh, physicians will ask is just, are we timing intercourse appropriately? And we know from the data that one of the main factors of uh, couples be time, becoming pregnant is actually timing correctly intercourse. Mm. Uh, the data shows that uh, people are not really aware what will be the proper time of, yeah, of, of, of having intercourse. So using what we call fertility monitors or, or things like that will help you uh, time it appropriately. Mm -hmm. But Jessica, when if the timing is correct, how often uh, couples should have intercourse? So around cycle day of your cycle day 10 um, of um, cycle day one being again, the first day of your period, um, I usually advise uh, couples to have sex every other day. Having sex every day may have a, a slight increase in pregnancy rates, but it can be a bit stressful um, 
to fit in having sex every single day. So your chance of intercourse or your chance of pregnant, excuse me, um, is 37% with intercourse every day. And it's with every other day intercourse, it drops it down to just 33%. And this is just based off one study. Interesting. Right. So yeah, I know. I'm sure you have to balance the psychology of whatever you recommend as much as uh, with the actual statistics. So that, that's an interesting point. Um, Okay, so we, we mentioned fertility monitors, and we, what about ovulation predictor kits? I know that that has come up um, in topics, in discussions of fertility. So. Right, so ovulation predictor kits, you can buy them um, um, at any grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, they are usually around 10 to $50, depending on the type of uh, ovulation predictor kit that you mm -hmm. buy, and it detects your LH surge. So on the day of your LH surge is the day you should have intercourse and the following day because um, the LH surge usually precedes ovulation by 12 to 36 hours. Hmm. I see. So rather than based on, on just timing of days since your period, these are actually measuring your uh, hormones, mm -hmm. telling you more specifically based on you know, um, hormone level when you're the most fertile. Yeah, it's detecting your LH surge, which occurs mm -hmm. um, prior to ovulation. Um, yeah, but mm -hmm. I was going to say, but the safest way and the, the one that supports the data that we have is that around 10, day 10 of the cycle, if you have intercourse between either every day or every other day, your chances of becoming pregnant are much higher than anything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the ovulation kids are helping know mm. when is the fertile window, mm. but the most important uh, factor is actually timing of the, the intercourse, yeah. way more than knowing exactly when ovulation occurs. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Huh. And it's important to uh, be mindful of the, if you're using a, a vaginal lubricant, that it's not actually working against you. So some of the over-the-counter lubricants can affect uh, your sperm motility. Mm -hmm. So um, there are safe options out there. They're hydroxyethylcellulose-based, so you may have to uh, play this recording again just to get that. It's hydroxyethylcellulose, um, and you can also use mineral oil, canola, canola oil, so you might have those around the house. <laughs> okay. All right. Good, good advice. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, one thing that I think we talked about very briefly, but I think we should spend some time on, is the uh, effective age. So, I, I know especially for people my age, I'm 43, and I know that uh, I have friend, many friends that were all starting families maybe a little bit later than uh, has happened in, in previous generations. So how does age actually affect fertility? Okay, so I will say that this is one, uh, not surprisingly, one of the factors we know the most. We okay. clearly know from, I guess even centuries that becoming older decreases fertility. Sure. It started with the biblical story with, with Abraham mm -hmm. had his wife who was, was much older and couldn't get pregnant. And so this is one of the factors we, need, we know a lot. So uh, the evidence that supports when to start fertility treatment is, is very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, Jessica, I know that you guys have some some uh, guidelines about that as well. Maybe you can uh, uh, expand. Yeah, so so unfortunately women are born with all the eggs they're ever gonna have and 
and um, unlike men who produce sperm continuously. Um, so our fertility really starts to decrease, a, get a gradual decline around age 32, and then a more steep decline around age 37. Um, we have a few tests that we, we do order. None of them are perfect, so, so that's why we have to order multiple tests to see exactly what your ovarian reserve will be. And these tests let us know how many eggs may be available, but they don't predict live birth. So we also have to take that into consideration. So the first test we, we usually order is a anti-malarian hormone or AMH. It can be done at any time during the menstrual cycle and it lets us know how many follicles are resting in the ovary. Um, that number, there's no uh, a guideline specific for that number, but we know on the lower end, um, that there's fewer eggs available. And so if we were to stimulate the ovaries and do IVF, we know that our egg number that we retrieve may be lower. Can I add something there? Mm -hmm. That we also know that women that are of a, a, they're younger or have no fertility problems, mm -hmm. this test is not useful at all. Hmm. This, is, this test gets, it's very useful one, you get to the point that you need fertility treatment. Mm. So there is evidence that we show in populations that if you wanted to use this test to predict who will or will not succeed uh, becoming pregnant, this will not be the test. But mm -hmm. if you get to the point that you are defined as infertile or you, meaning you have tried for 12 months and you mm -hmm. couldn't get pregnant, or you are older and have tried for six months, you couldn't be get pregnant, this test is really, really good. Right, Jessica? Would you yes, agree I would that? agree with that. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. And then there's another test. It's called, um, it's FSH and LH and estradiol. And those are basic hormonal tests done at the beginning of your cycle. And it lets us know how the signaling from your pituitary to your ovary is, um, you know, does your pituitary have to kind of yell, increase that signal so that ovary will uh, ovulate, will, will start to grow a follicle and then ovulate an egg? Um, if, if that number is very high, um, it can be predictive of, or it can be um, used to determine if you've had ovarian aging. Um, hmm. The other test is an ultrasound done in the beginning of your cycle. It's called an antral follicle count. And what we do is look at the ovary. It kind of looks, looks, looks like a chocolate chip and we count these little follicles. Um, we get a number and it works to kind of in the same fashion. We get a, a number, it lets us know if, we'd, if we were to stimulate your ovaries, how many uh, follicles would likely develop. Um, but again, they're not predictive of live birth. Interesting, okay, so, so we, age is not just related to having fewer eggs. It's also related to, um, I think this is what you're saying, uh, hormonal problems in terms of signaling for, for mm -hmm. ovulation, um, and then as well as follicle count, right? So, so there seems to be a number, of, um, a number of things that happen over chronologic or biologic aging that reduce your chance of pregnancy. That's right, right? that's right. right. Aging is a, it's a proxy of, right the system not, uh, I mean, we are not, we're not born to continue to be fertile for life. So different right. pieces of the system is fa are failing while we are becoming older. I see. So you mentioned the ages of 32 and 37. Um, 
but obviously that that those are just kind of milestones, right? And, and they're not the same for everyone. Right. Right. So, um, you know, how, I mean, how old can women be where they come in to say, I want to have a child where you would say, this is something that we recommend pursuing versus saying, you know, maybe this isn't the right idea. Well, I would say it's going to depend on, um, the, the test results that we have. Mm -hmm. um, some women may have better fertility um, than others. Um, and so it's an entire picture of looking at that, that patient to determine what the best course of action is. Mm -hmm. um, the, with IVF, um, the rates um, above age 40 are quite low. So some mm -hmm. women um, will have to consider other uh, options for pregnancy, um, but it's definitely an individual decision. See, when you say low, do you have an approximate, I mean, what are we talking, less than 50%, 5%, you know, what, what do we mean? I would say um, for low, like I said, it would be different, but, but for some, um, and it would be very specific on the population that you're treating. Mm -hmm. So- um, Over age 40? And I'm talking more uh, IVF. For IVF to be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. Okay. So what are, so you talked about some of other options that people could do to, to deal with this biological clock. Um, you know, I know a lot of people are freezing eggs these days. Um, is that something that you, you have planned well in advance? Is that something you could do well into your late 30s? You know, how do you advise people on that? Um, for IVF, specifically? Uh, for yeah, go ahead. Uh, for, for different treatments, it, it's going to depend what the um, overall uh, diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. So some, some women can start with ovulation induction, mm -hmm. and um, that's when we prescribe medications that you take by mouth. Um, and the goal is to secrete, um, to, to cause ovulation, so, or potentially for unexplained infertility to have more than one follicle develop. Mm -hmm. um, other options for treatment would be intrauterine insemination, and that's when we inject um, the sperm directly into the uterus. Um, for some women, they may try those therapies first mm -hmm. and then proceed with IVF. Okay. Other women, if, for example, um, they, their fallopian tubes are not open, may have no choice but to go directly to IVF. What about people who choose to electively uh, freeze their eggs so that they could delay pregnancy for later? Um, for those for those women, um, they there's not a specific age that we've identified as the best age to um, present for egg freezing, mm -hmm. um, and so that would also be an, kind of an individual evaluation. Determine what um, your family size um, may you know, what your family size that you're planning could be. Um, and so there'll be a lot of uh, discussion with your physician about the course of treatment. Okay. All right. So I think we're getting towards the end of our, our conversation here. So I wanted to talk, you know, briefly about what to expect, you know, if, if it turns out, you know, you've been trying as a couple for a year, um, you're not having success. Uh, what to expect when you go to the doctor and, um, you know, the initial workup, what are the options available, you know, maybe walk us briefly, because I'm sure this is a long conversation, um, through that whole um, topic. Before, before Jessica explains the steps, I sure. want to say this, 
yes. that you should go after 12 months of trying with an optimistic outlook. The probability of becoming pregnant today has improved so substantially in the last 30 years that it's one of the most successful stories we have. Wow. And uh, there are multiple options, multiple treatments, and uh, uh, the future is bright. So this is one of those areas that science have made a tremendous progress. And the outcome is a wonderful outcome because it mm -hmm. ends up being the creation of a family. So with that, I let the, Jessica- That's a great point that we should have brought to the forefront. So thank you for saying that. So Jessica, what, what would, they, would they expect? So they're gonna, um, if, if you bring a partner with you, if you're trying to conceive um, with a partner, both uh, male and female will start the evaluation at the same time. Um, the physician will ask uh, both uh, partners if they um, have any medical problems, if they've had any surgeries, what medications they're um, taking. Of course, we talked a little bit about sexually transmitted infections. They'll definitely ask, and they'll ask about um, how long you've been trying to conceive, um, if there's any issues like an ejaculation uh, disorder, or if, um, if they've been timing their intercourse um, to ovulation. Um, also, if um, there's um, any obstetric history. Um, and for the female asking, and, and excuse me, for the female and the male asking for family history, is there um, any history of uh, <clears throat> early infertility in the family? Um, any uh, um, uh, birth defects, mental disability, um, or early menopause. And then uh, for the female, uh, we already kind of discussed uh, many of these things, but um, it's important for um, the doctor to do a breast exam, a thyroid um, uh, exam, and also um, um, do an ultrasound, kind of uh, ensure that the uh, uterus is in normal shape. Um, and also look at the ovaries to see if there's any cysts. At this time, we'll also be able to tell if there's a fibroid um, or any other uh, pathology of the uterus that uh, may be concerning for fertility. Uh, labs that will be done, uh, thyroid testing, and those um, ovarian reserve markers, which we previous, previously discussed. Um, for the male, um, of course, it's the semen analysis. And if there's anything that's concerning for the male's past, they may be asked to also see a reproductive urologist. And a lot of patience and optimism. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm sure this is a, a very trying time for many couples and there's a lot of fear and anxiety when they come into your clinic. So, um, yeah, so I guess, you know, the actual treatments available, as Enrique mentioned, have become much more, there's more options available. Uh, they're much more successful. I think we could probably spend an hour or two just talking about them. So I don't want to do that. So maybe <laughs> could we just talk briefly about some of the available uh, treatments and obviously depends on which condition you have, but what, what do you have available for couples these days? Um, so kind of, uh briefly discussed them already, but the ovulation induction, mm -hmm. um, 
that entails two med uh, one of two medications that you could take to stimulate the ovaries. Typically, um, that can be done with either timed intercourse or an intrauterine insemination to depending on uh, the semen parameters and also um, timing uh, for the couple. Um, the other options are injections. So these injections can be taken daily. Um, they are used less frequently because of cost and because of the increased risk of multiple pregnancies, multiple gestations, mm -hmm. so twins or triplets. Um, and then we have IVF. IVF is a not only an expensive process, but it is time consuming. Mm -hmm. um, it's about 10 days of injections that the female um, takes at home. Um, so they're administering their own shots. And there's frequent um, ultrasounds and um, blood work done. When the timing, when the growth of the follicles, potential eggs um, look um, appropriate, then we, um, uh, of course, add another injection injection, um, the HCG trigger shot or a Lupron trigger shot. And then um, we schedule the uh, retrieval of the eggs. So right before ovulation, the, uh, the patient comes in for an egg retrieval. Um, typically the patient is asleep. Um, it's an outpatient procedure and we collect all of the fluid um, that we were measuring on ultrasound and then we hand that fluid to the embryologist they look under the microscope to identify any eggs and then the eggs are mixed with sperm or they're either um, they're mixed with sperm and then we follow them overnight we check the next day for fertilization and then potentially if if we are concerned about fertilization or we have a low sperm count, uh, we can do ICSI, which is when we inject one sperm into one egg. Um, and so the embryologist chooses the best looking sperm, the one that's um, uh, moving, uh, has good motility and injects that sperm into that egg. And then an embryo is created based and, on mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and is, is put back into the, the uterus cavity for natural implantation. So we take away some of the process outside, actually in the lab, and we put it back and hopefully implants and you have a baby. Mm -hmm. So how much does that all cost? You know, does the insurance cover any of that? So it can be cost prohibitive. It's different across the, the United States. So on average around 20,000, some um, women and hopefully more will have coverage. Um, so it's really important to check with your insurance to see if you have any coverage and the infertility office will be well equipped to deal with your insurance. Um, there are increasing number of states covering. Um, so about 17 states provide some type of fertility insurance. Hmm. Interesting. Which right. impl implies that the majority of the states do not cover. Do not, it. right. Of do course. Not cover. Right. And we could have a whole podcast on the uh, justice of that. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we're in justice there. Um, okay, so I think in closing, we should talk about some of the options that are available to people where, where IVF or some of these treatments you talked about did not work. You know, I know that there's still many other options to starting a family. Um, so briefly, can we talk about some of those? Right. So it's always uh, important to consider adoption. So we always discuss adoption with our patients um, and also third party reproduction. So mm -hmm. some uh, females will have to um, use donor eggs, um, donor sperm, or even a donated embryo. 
Um, and for some women, this wasn't planned. Other women were prepared. So women who may have been um, diagnosed early with early menopause. So um, these are options. Um, some women may need to use a gestational carrier. So potentially due to a history of a, um, a hysterectomy or a, um, some females are born without a uterus. So gestational carriers um, can also be cost prohibitive, but that's also an option. Yeah. And I will say that being open-minded, there are many, many options. There are many ways to become a, become a parent and being open-minded is one of the most wonderful ways to become a, a, a parent at the end. I personally have experienced the array of them and I'm, extremely happy with all the options that are, were available to us and we, we, we have an adopted child, we have an IVF child and uh, so um, yeah, I'm, it's a difficult <laughs> difficult walk to walk but the, the end is, is a wonderful uh, uh, process. Yeah, and, that, and that's fantastic that we live in a time when we have so many options available and hopefully as science progresses, we have even more available to people um, as well as some of these options other than um, IVF, et cetera. Um, and also eventually we need to address the issues of insurance and coverage and you know, the, um, you know, the inability of some people uh, to not have a family based on resources and you know, whether we as a society want to address those issues. I think we do. Um, great. Well, that was a lot of great information on the topic of infertility, guys. And hopefully our listeners gained some important knowledge, especially those of you who are trying to conceive. So thank you so much, Enrique and Jessica, for joining us on this episode. Before thank we go, you for having us. Yeah, well, yes. thank you so much. Uh, before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up this year in June in Boston, and it gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon.